Why aren't you saying anything? I thought you were going to say it. Oh, okay, I'll say it. <laughs> Sorry, everybody, that's a bit of a false start. Welcome to the first episode of the Lex Rex Institute podcast. I'm your host, David Trucial. Wait, no, he's David Trucial. I'm Alexander Haberbush, and I'm president of the Lex Rex Institute. I'm also and an attorney, although I am not acting in that capacity today. Uh, I'm David Trucial. I'm apparently the only one who knows how to read uh, a script. <laughs> and I'm the lead read writer for the Lex Rex Institute. Well, I usually go unscripted. Anyway, this is our first episode, you can probably tell. Before we begin, please note that nothing in this podcast constitutes legal advice. And the opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals expressing them, not necessarily the opinions of the Lex Rex Institute. So, for those of you who aren't familiar with the Lex Rex Institute, we are a nonprofit constitutional advocacy group. Uh, our philosophy can probably be best summed up by our name, Lex Rex, which is Latin for the law is king, because we believe that in America, we are and ought to be governed solely by the law, the Constitution, not by the whims of any person, especially those in charge. Our goal is to promote public knowledge and awareness of the Constitution and to enable the American public to defend the liberties and guarantees. So this being the first episode of the podcast, the format may not stay exactly the same, but for now, uh, it's going to be uh, the two of us most weeks at least. You may hear some guests, you may hear other members from the organization, but we're going to be having discussions about developments in U.S. law, whether at the Supreme Court or elsewhere. And if there's anything you want to hear, if you want changes to the format, something you think would be a good suggestion, go ahead and send that to us. We really do take those comments to heart. We'll do whatever you say. Yeah, absolutely anything. Whatever your heart desires, we will find a way to do it. That is a guarantee. Not actually a guarantee. Don't listen to me. Ignore this. Just, yeah, redacted. Everything. So this week, among other things, we're going to be talking about some of the recent developments uh, in the Supreme Court, some of the major things brewing over there. Brewing. It's mostly a dark blend over there at the Supreme Court. I have no idea what yeah, that means. Yeah, you don't drink coffee. Do you have any idea what that means at all? No, I... I um... Sadly, I drink tea like our uh, filthy English cousins. Yeah, the oppressors. King yes. George over here. Actually, he was, he was German. He probably didn't drink a lot of tea. Probably not. Probably drank Jägermeister. Or... <laughs> that, may, that may be a little xenophobic, <laughs> but... I'm sure that was on. popular back in the 1770s, right? Sure, let's, let's pretend. Anyway, uh, we do expect this episode to be released very early in May. Probably not actually... On May Day. Yes, we've actually got a special program for you today. Normally we're going to review the Supreme Court docket, but today, in honor of one of our important holidays, well, David, you introduce it. Yeah, so May Day, also known as International Workers' Day, is the favorite holiday. Workers of the, of the world unite. You have nothing to lose but your chains. Yeah, exactly. So we thought it would be fun to talk a little bit about communism and how that fits into American law. Is, you know, is it legal to be a commie? Well, you'll find out a little bit later on this episode. Yeah, spoiler, it's not the best to be a communist in American law, as it turns out. <laughs> well, it certainly doesn't help you. No. <laughs> so, yeah, why don't we... Turns out you uh, have more to lose than your chains. <laughs> yeah, that's true, and we, we can actually start talking about that. So we wanted to talk specifically about one federal law and one part of the uh, California Education Code. Why don't, we, why don't we talk about California first? This is from the California Education Code. This is a quote. We're not making this up. It's real. You can, you can believe us. This is, this is still current law, by the way. This is not just old law. This is currently yep. on the books. On the books. Has not been repealed. No teacher giving instruction in any school or on any property belonging to any agencies included in the public school system 
shall advocate or teach communism with the intent to indoctrinate or to inculcate in the mind of any pupil a preference for communism. You heard that, teachers? Yeah. So basically, it. yeah. Uh, you, you can't try to inculcate a preference for communism. You'll be fired if you do that. Yeah, no, it's, that's completely true. You're breaking the law if you try to make any of your students into a communist, and I hope you take that to heart. He's um, not joking. <laughs> this, is, this is genuinely extant California law. And actually, you understated the law by a bit. It says inculcate a preference for communism, so you don't even have to try to make them communists. Just teaching them that you know, communists are sympathetic and yeah, <laughs> write about some things and... Well, that runs afoul of Education Code Section 51530. Yep. It goes on to, to say that it's not trying to prevent anyone from teaching facts about communism, but... Just trying to like, make people like it. It's like the University yeah. of Wallamaloo. You could teach any of the socialist philosophers as long as you make it clear that they were wrong. <laughs> um, now, one of the things that uh, I noticed when we were reviewing this that I thought was very interesting is that uh, the statute does define what it means by communism. So it says, for the purposes of this section, communism is a political theory that the presently existing form of government of the United States or of this state should be changed by force, violence, or other unconstitutional means to a totalitarian dictatorship which is based on the principles of communism as expounded by Marx, Lenin, and Stalin. Now, See, that, that's... The, that part I find confusing, because sure, Lenin and Stalin both advocated for totalitarian dictatorship, but Karl Marx was very ambiguous about that. Yeah, and that's certainly true. And the fact that it says and Stalin rather than or Stalin isn't helpful here, because it would need to line up specifically with Marxist-Leninist-Stalinism. Uh, so which is a can Bernie specific... Sanders be a teacher in California? That's the question. Uh, probably depends on who you ask. <laughs> <laughs> But We're not going to voice our the, opinion on that today. No, the thing that I noticed, though, that I thought was uh, of particular interest is that you can definitely be a Trotskyist and be a teacher in California. He and Stalin definitely did not align. Very different forms of communism. So apparently that's okay. But, you know, just, just no Stalinism. So just, uh, you know, before we move on, if any of you have kids that are currently in the public school system, if you feel that they're being subjected to communist indoctrination, well, you've actually got a cause of action for that. And while the Lex Rex Institute has not previously litigated under Education <laughs> Code Section 51530, we're always open to it. So give us a call. We may be able to take care of your, your a child's communist teacher, have them you know, physically removed, so to speak. <laughs> okay, wow. From the school, you know. Yeah. All right. Anyway, well, you can be a teacher, but you're still not given yeah, full no. protection under federal employment law. So let's turn to that next. Uh, yeah, this is a fun one, too. So this is uh, now this is federal code. This is the United and States code. Yes. This this next one applies this in every state of the union. Federal law. And this is, you know, the, the broader context here is that it's it's law defining unlawful practices of employers. Uh, but then there's this little subsection, subsection so, so it's Yeah, so, so just to give you a little bit of context for this law, federal law has various things you can't do as an employer. And many of those things are also in the Bill of Rights. So there are things like you can't discriminate against somebody on the basis of race. You can't mm. discriminate against their political views, for instance. You can't fire somebody because, you know, they wouldn't go on a date with their boss. Stuff like that. And this law that we're going to read right now creates an exception to that generality. So, David, go ahead. 
Yes, it does. Uh, so the, the subheader uh, for this section is members of Communist Party or Communist Action or Communist Front organizations. Uh, and it says, as used in this subchapter, the phrase unlawful employment practice shall not be deemed to include any action or measure taken by an employer labor, labor organization, joint labor management committee, or employment agency with respect to an individual who is a member of the Communist Party of the United States or oh, any other organization required to register as a communist action or communist front organization by or final order of the Subversive Activities Control Board pursuant to the Subversive Activities Control Act of 1950. <laughs> See, um, 1950 makes sense for a law like this. The, the California yes, one, believe it or not, that was from 1976. You know who signed true. that into law in California? Uh, you told me, but tell me again. <laughs> Jerry Brown. Yep. That's the governor that uh, we just had before the current one. We, we had him, you know, years ago, back in the <laughs> 70s, and he signed this anti-communist provision into law. Uh, but, but here, I noticed one of the key differences in this federal law is that you have to be a member of some kind of communist organization. It's not just about the ideology. Yep. Yep. That's true. Uh, and so, you know, it's about being like a card-carrying member. But it's, it's also, you know, there's a lot of leeway that's afforded by this section. Um, I, I, uh, I was thinking about having my employees, you know, requiring them to register as communists so that I can do whatever I want to them. That's not true. That's a joke. Please. That's, that's a joke. <laughs> yeah, well, and, you know, I'm not sure how many would be willing to do that anyway. Uh, but, yeah, and this, this law remains on the book. So I guess, uh, you know. So it's anything that refers to an unlawful employment practice in this chapter of the code, which is the chapter referring to unlawful employment practices, doesn't apply if you're a member of a communist organization. Yep. So I guess for International Workers' Day, I guess the best advice we could give is make sure you are not a member of a communist party. No, I can stand by that. We're, we're a non-political organization, but I think that I can genuinely say, from a legal standpoint, most circumstances, it's not advisable to be a commie. Yeah, yeah that, that's a better way to, to couch it. Under <laughs> most circumstances, we can't really advise that you join a communist party. For, purely or for employment law purposes. Idea. Yeah, yeah. Pure, purely for employment law perspective, of course. We're not, we're not making any judgments about politics. Um, um, of course not. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that's, that's, so your, that's your business if you, if you want to privately go around espousing communism. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. Uh, we, we have, you know, no input there. So well, I feel anyway, like we've got to move on to our next section now. <laughs> yes. Happy, happy May Day. May Day special. Happy May Day, but uh, let's, <laughs> let's move on. Okay. So... Workers of the world, consider before uniting. You have more exactly. to lose than your chains. <laughs> exactly. Like your job. <laughs> All right, another thing, it's been all over the news lately. We've been following some of the updates on our Facebook platform and otherwise about all of this. But Ginny Thomas, who is the wife of Justice Clarence Thomas, continues to make headlines as various congressional committees under Democratic leadership have made noise about imposing by law an ethics standard on the Supreme Court calling for very specific guidelines for when justices have to recuse themselves. And even not not in, a good idea. In, in certain quarters, even threatening the impeachment of Justice Thomas. And I guess, first of all, we should talk about what is it that Ginny Thomas did that is, has raised all of this. 
This is something you actually addressed on one of our uh, videos yes. previously. Right. Um, yeah, that was uh, one of the Ask an Attorney videos, I think, from three or four weeks ago. Yeah. Uh, I think it's called that... uh, Did Clarence Thomas Act Improperly? And it's on our YouTube channel, Lex Rex Institute on YouTube. You can find that if you're interested. Yeah, I would recommend that you check that one out, if only to see the actual firsthand evidence of what, of what happened with Jenny Thomas, which is interesting and amusing, in my opinion. Yeah, well, but... let me read one of the text messages. So it, all of this revolves principally around text messages, right? So it's text messages right. that she had sent to, oh, gee, was it the chief chief of staff, right? Yeah. Oh, gosh, I'm blanking on his name. Well, Mark at Meadows, any rate. Wasn't it? Yes, yes, I think I that's right. Chief of staff, Mark Meadows. And... and Variety of things, basically, like keep going with the investigation. You keep up the the yeah. Uh, for anyone who 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 doesn't know, I guess we should clarify. This was uh, the chief of staff for President Trump under the last administration, uh, and she sent him a series of text messages around. Uh, I think exclusively before January sixth, but possibly continuing afterward. At any rate, she, uh, and it's you know it's not traditionally. It's pretty far outside the scope of something that could plausibly be considered grounds for a judge to recuse himself get into that more in the other video, but the text message that I wanted to read is this one. So this is a quote. First text message is a, is a quotation. I assume it's either a paraphrase or a direct quotation from like a Breitbart or some kind of news outlet like that. Yeah. And she says, Biden crime family and ballot fraud co-conspirators, and then she lists the conspirators, are being arrested and detained for ballot fraud right now and over coming days and will be living in barges off Gitmo to face military <laughs> tribunals for sedition. And she comments, I hope this is true. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> so. Clarence Thomas has subsequently made the claim that he and his wife do not talk about the, the Supreme Court's calendar or the items that are on docket. And yeah. given this text message, I'm inclined to believe that's true. Yeah, uh, that was my takeaway as well, um, <laughs> that she thought it was plausible that at least like a half a dozen high-profile political figures were going to be, for some reason, no, loaded on she, the... She listen, elected officials, bureaucrats, social media censorship mongers, fake stream <laughs> media reporters, etc., are all being arrested and held off Gitmo. <laughs> Yeah, uh, on barges, too, for some reason, which that's one of the strangest elements to me. I don't know why you would pick a barge. As far as I'm aware, the Navy doesn't maintain any barges. Um, Look, I mean, people that really believe in a lot of this deep state stuff, that, you know, that there are secret tribunals taking our rights and whatnot, this is more egregious than some of the more outlandish claims that you hear in that. Like, oh, if yeah. If you know really anything about due process... I, you know, I feel mean, almost mean saying it because she's not a lawyer and there's no reason she should be expected to, I guess, know this stuff. But it yeah. just, it feels like if you've been following the news much at all, you would know that this probably isn't true. And even if you <laughs> thought it was, I don't know why you'd hope that it's true. This is yeah. <laughs> very, um, very dangerous. <laughs> so that's, yeah, that's, that's one thing I want to bring up here is even assuming, and you know, I think from the text, we can probably conclude that Jenny Thomas felt that the last presidential election wasn't quite kosher, let's say. A lot of people felt thought, that way. Right, right. Uh, and felt that, that Donald Trump... The, the 2000 the sworn affidavits were, oh, that gave some people cause to suspect that <laughs> something had run afoul. At any rate, I think we can assume her motivation here is for, you know, the preservation of America as we know it. That's what all of the, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's what the talking points are about. <laughs> yeah, whatever you believe about the events of the last presidential election, we won't comment here. But both sides thought or think that they were preserving our republic. 
Yeah, and no, it seems that's... like if that's your motivation, then one of the last things you should hope is true is like the mass uh, incarceration of civilians <laughs> who are then going to be transported to Cuba for military tribunals. Military tribunals um, for sedition. <laughs> yeah. That seems like a, arguably a bigger deal than Dealing you know the election. outcome of the yeah. of the election. I, I mean, being this on. is really because remember that um, the protests that were in Hong Kong in 2019 about mm -hmm. the extradition law that Beijing had passed, saying that people who were accused of certain crimes in Hong Kong would not be tried under Hong Kong law, but would be extradited to Beijing and tried under Communist Party mandate. Yeah, and that was, was basically we should, viewed uh... as the, the total upheaval of the entire way of life in Hong Kong. Well, yeah. And we, we should that clarify this is that tantamount to that. Yeah, we should clarify that previously, due to the, the terms of a treaty with the UK, In Hong England. Kong was governed under uh, British law. Yeah, actually, their judges, I think, still their judges are appointed by the Queen of England. I think that's true. Uh, unless that has changed in the aftermath of the recent years. But at any rate, basically, the takeaway uh, with the Ginny Thomas text is that. There doesn't seem to be a reason to believe that anyone would rely on them for substantive guidance in doing pretty much anything. Um, and the involvement with her husband. Uh, but imagine Clarence if Thomas, he had. Imagine if Mark Meadows had said, "Oh, that's a really good idea. I'm going to round up um, <laughs> fake stream media reporters and put them on barges off of Gitmo." Then should yeah, Clarence Thomas uh, recuse himself? Uh, well, <laughs> that's a. I guess that's a, that's a separate question. But any. Anyway, that's not what happened. I actually um, argue that he shouldn't because the case had nothing to do with that. Yeah, no, that's, that's all very true as well. But in, in any case, what actually happened was that the Supreme Court was called on to rule about the disclosure of certain documents from the Trump administration pertaining to January 6th of last year. Justice Thomas was the only dissent. The other eight justices voted to, to allow those documents to be disclosed. Uh, that, and... that was actually the Texas v. Pennsylvania case that you're thinking of. Okay, I, I, I was only ever hazy about the, the specifics. But in any case, that's the basis, though, for all of this, is the claim is that because his wife had been texting with someone in the Trump administration, that he now has a conflict of interest in this case. And Because his basically wife that's, has that's, an that's... interest in people being sent to barges off of Guantanamo <laughs> Bay, then yeah. Clarence Thomas must, I'm trying to follow the logic here, must have well, an interest in finding in favor of the state of Texas and it claims that whether or not other states had followed their election laws impacts their ability to pick the president. Yeah. I'm just not seeing the connection here. No. And so I guess like part of the problem here is that th this is really not how judicial conflict of interest works. I think the, the thread here, and this may be generous, is that he wouldn't want those text messages disclosed because they reflect on his wife, who reflects on him. They wouldn't um, even have been so, disclosed in that case. And so in, I, I suppose there's some sense of him wanting to avoid embarrassment, but that's like really the extent of the connection as far as I can tell. And that's, you know, we've, we've discussed this off air before. That's, that's really not what conflict of interest is meant to do. Or, or conflicts of interest mean that you, you sit in a position where the outcome of the case will have a material impact upon you that either harms you or benefits you. Right. And frankly, I'm not sure how that's supposed to, to be the case here. Uh, uh, unless, I mean, I suppose the opinion of the court could have been that we'll start sending 
uh, fake streaming media reporters to barges <laughs> off of Gitmo. And if that, well, even then, that's actually not a material benefit. That's just something that's no. just the desired outcome. So, yeah. I mean, um, to, to Jenny Thomas, not to me. Yeah, so I guess, yeah, good clarification. Um, I think <laughs> we can say that pretty much universally we are not in favor of these gitmo barges <laughs> you know that feels safe david i'm not in yeah. favor of putting anybody in a gitmo barge yeah <laughs> and that's not just my opinion the lex rex institute will stand by that that feels like a pretty safe one <laughs> well we got to keep moving them yeah so i guess the the takeaway here if there is one is that a judge having an opinion about something is not the same as having an interest in the case most Speaking most judges Supreme... probably have opinions at any rate, yeah, let's move and we on. do cover this more in depth in a video about this issue specifically. But speaking of the Supreme Court, did you see that? So a few months ago, David wrote the script to a video that we made about a case called McGirt v. Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. And did you notice on the Supreme Court's calendar, they're actually hearing sort of a follow up to that case, Oklahoma v. Castro Huerta? I did, yes. So this was one of our earlier YouTube videos that I may be so bold, I think is one of our better ones. So I oh, urge you to go check I that out. That script you wrote um, is fantastic. Well, thank you. It's called, No Reason Pessimism Should Prevail. That's a quote from the court's opinion in that case. So if you're interested, I think it's a fascinating case. And I guess before we talk about Castro Huerta, we should probably give an overview of McGirt and what McGirt did. Yeah. Do you want me to do that, David? Or uh, Sure. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so to keep it really simple, because the issues are fairly complicated, but McGirt v. Oklahoma basically looked at an Indian man living on an Indian reservation in Oklahoma who had committed a crime that is uh, listed in an act of Congress. I think the act of Congress is called the, do you remember, I think it was the Major Crimes Act, if I'm I think, I think this one is Major Crimes. A similar law, General Crimes Act, is key in Castro Huerta, but yes. I believe it was the Major Crimes Act. That's correct. But, but anyway, long story short, the way jurisdiction works on Indian reservations about who can prosecute a crime and then what court is very, very complicated. But essentially, what the case hinged on was whether or not a treaty that had been made with the Cherokee Nation prior to the incorporation of Oklahoma as a state still continued to be in effect. Because if it did, then Oklahoma did not have jurisdiction to prosecute this case in Oklahoma State Court, and it had to be heard in federal court. And basically, the, the opinion of, again, this is in the video too, but basically the opinion of the court was that you know, the law should remain the law. And the fact that nobody has cited this treaty for a long time and nobody's tried to raise claims under it, and the fact that Oklahoma has ignored it for a long time doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. Therefore, the finding is in favor of McGirt. That was the, the litigant in that case. Yeah, and so in, in practical terms, one of the things that resulted here is that a huge proportion of the land in the borders of Oklahoma has now sort of had its status as Indian reservation re-recognized, if you will, where Oklahoma had established state courts and you know basically ignored reservation status for a very long time. I think I remember reading that it was up to 40% of the land in Oklahoma. Uh, it's a substantial proportion. Yeah, is now going to be considered to be Indian reservation. And uh, we, we should add, by the way, we know there's different terminology that's used for indigenous peoples of North America. There actually is, like in law, the term Indian is a technical term. It's a term of that's art. correct. So, you know, don't be offended if we talk about Indians and Indian country. Those are actually the legal terms. We'll be offended if you get offended because we're just citing the law. Yeah. <laughs> we won't. We don't really. <laughs> Use whatever words you want. We don't. 
yeah, just, just to clarify in case that was bothering anybody. But so that was McGirt and that was decided last year or late 2019 in 2020 calendar. Okay. Castro Huerta, the argument in this case took place, I think a couple days ago. That was, I think Wednesday, April 27th. Did they already hear oral argument on this? I believe they did. Yes. Um, I miss that. But at any rate, Oklahoma has sort of had some, some they objections. They the ruling. Yeah. To, they, they, uh, they have a lot of courts, and they spend a lot of money on those courts, and there's a bunch of them, and they want something to do. And technically, so the way that Indian reservations work, there's concurrent jurisdiction with the state. They exist occupying, in many instances, the same spaces of land. You know, you've, you've seen on a map, there's a shape that's Oklahoma. That shape is still Oklahoma, but portions of it are shared jurisdiction with Indian reservations. So the way that Indian law versus state law devolves upon different people varies based on the person, the circumstances, and the location. So what's very, very clear, and what McGirt made abundantly clear, is that if a member of an Indian tribe commits a crime against another member of an Indian tribe while on an Indian reservation, state doesn't have any jurisdiction over that. Now, we also know that if somebody who is not an Indian, somebody who is just an Oklahoman, commits a crime against another person who is not an Indian, just an Oklahoman, uh, and that takes place on the Indian reservation, that is within the state's jurisdiction that can be heard in state court. So what's now being heard in the Oklahoma v. Castro Huerta case is, I'm going to flip this, I know, but... It's either where the defendant is an Indian and the victim is not, or where the victim is an Indian and the defendant is not. Yeah, I'm 95% sure that the defendant is not an Indian and the victim is in right. this case. Not, not 100%, I'm, but I'm, the reason, I'm almost The reason I'm not sure which way it goes is that the law is the same whichever way, because both of those are actually entertained in a law we mentioned earlier, the General Crimes Act which actually does specifically by name reference crimes that are committed by an Indian against non-Indian or against whichever is the flip of what I just said. Yeah, (laughs) Um, sure. And so the question is, or at least the argument that Oklahoma is trying to make, is that even though the federal government's made its position very plain on this, because states have general jurisdiction over their sovereign territory, they should still be able to prosecute this person in state court. In my opinion, that's not correct. The reason that's not correct is that treaties with the Indian tribes exist under the authority of Congress. That's the same authority by which a state could enter into the Union in the first place. So if a treaty with an Indian tribe predates a state's adoption into the Union, then that Indian treaty continues to be in effect unless it is either explicitly or implicitly abrogated by an act of Congress, which has never happened. So I don't think it even gets to the point where it becomes a preemption issue. I think it always just remains a, an issue of state versus Indian sovereignty. Yeah, I didn't read through all of the, I think it was the oral argument again, because I'm, I'm pretty sure that already happened. And I think that's well, what you, I was you generally reading. hear an oral argument. Well, I was reading a transcript. If, I was, <laughs> if, if it was indeed oral argument and not something else that I was reading, I'm pretty sure it was that because I think there was back and forth. But at any rate, you seem to be broadly echoing what uh, Justice Neil Gorsuch seemed to be getting at, which was that as far as he's concerned, the Tend to agree issue with really... That guy. Yeah, generally. We're mostly pretty big fans of his. Um, <laughs> We'd but, love your uh, autograph, Neil, if you're listening. 
Yeah, uh, I think we both have his book. So if you want to, you know, send us a, a signed copy of that. I, I bought copies of his um, book for pretty much everybody in Lex Rex. Yeah, he seemed to be pursuing the the same line of reasoning that this is really an issue that has to do, first of all, with the treaty rather than anything downstream from there. But one of the things I think was interesting, both in McGirt and in this case, is that Oklahoma, or at any rate, Oklahoma's attorneys, have wanted to steer the, the argument toward basically a balancing test. Or, we don't like those. We tend not to like those, true. Um, <laughs> so basically, a balancing test, in so many words, inviting the court to consider the practical, tangible benefits to different parties and how to best balance them. Yeah, um, it's about interests. So yeah. the, the actual thing the Constitution protects, or the law protects, is one interest, whether it's free speech yeah. or whatever it may be. And then whatever the government wants to do to you is the other interest. And then we just kind of compare the two of them and then we see which one there's more of and we go with that. Yeah, that's, that's a pretty blunt way of putting it, but that's not, <laughs> that's not really inaccurate. Over and over again, and you know, I haven't read everything on this case. I didn't read everything on McGirt, but I read enough, I think, to get a general sense that in addition to other arguments, this isn't the only argument they made, but... Oklahoma was very interested in pointing out the potential drawbacks of reorganizing the jurisdiction in this way. And, you know, they've continued. So at the time, it, was it must be well illegal because it would be very hard for us to do. <laughs> yeah. Um, so in the, the McGirt case, in the McGirt case, it was very much for decades. We've been doing these things. We have all these courts. We have police precincts in all these places. We're enforcing laws in this particular way. Why upset? You're telling us we wasted all this money. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and in this case, in the case of Castro Huerta, they're talking about allegedly thousands of crimes that are going unprosecuted because no one's in a position to prosecute them if Oklahoma can't do it. I mean, there's still Obviously, crimes. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, they've basically said, well, but the federal government isn't in a position to prosecute them. But the FBI uh, is no good at what it does. So <laughs> right. what are we supposed to do? Um, I mean, and, that's sort of the same issue that some of these border states are looking at with the Biden administration's refusal to enforce some of the immigration law, uh, where they've yeah. entered into a compact for the enforcement of borders. Yeah, I, I believe in Texas v. Biden, basically one of the issues has, has well, we, we won't get too in-depth into this. but be a good one uh, for next week, though. Possibly, yeah. Among other things, uh, one of the questions that was raised in court was, you know, they were basically saying we need the Biden administration to, inf like, you know, to take this particular interpretation. We're talking about of... the border issue now. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, just, just for a second, I just wanted to make one quick point. Basically, saying Texas, among other states, is trying to enjoin the Biden administration to enforce immigration policy in a particular way that they say is consistent with the underlying law. And at one point, a question came up in court: Has any administration ever enforced this law? consistent with with how you understand it and they were basically like no they haven't um so it's <laughs> it's been it's been uh you know an interesting uh few months well, as, as far as that sort of issue and, goes and that gets into issues of chevron deference and interpretation yeah. of administrative law there's some real bad supreme court precedent saying that executive agencies are the best interpreters of their own enabling statutes which is just madness to me yeah, you know, that, that's a pretty heavy issue and maybe one that we should get into on a different podcast. I will say just very briefly, we, we do have a, a written article recently that delves into Chevron doctrine a, a bit that I think 
has the title something like Why You're Likely Wrong About the Constitution, something like that. You can find that on our website. <laughs> it's got some, if some details about that. If anybody's better at uh, doing headlines for articles, hit us up. Yeah, you know. <laughs> <laughs> if you've got better ideas for what we can call things, that's yeah. another suggestion we'll gladly take See, from you. I come from a world where you, where you label something like first amended opposition to defendants. <laughs> <laughs> so no, yeah. not, not my skill set. Um, no, but at any rate, if you're interested in that and, and learning a little bit more about Chevron doctrine and administrative agencies, you can look at our website, lexrex.org, and you can find that article there. Yeah, so anyway, these Oklahoma cases have been fascinating. I think it's something to watch for sure. They are a really good demonstration of, I think, really two competing ideas of law that are mm -hmm. sort of struggling against each other in modern America. And those are, is the law what it says on its face? Or is the law whatever is most conducive to the kind of society we want to live in? Yeah. Because really the only sort of argument that Oklahoma can make in a case like this is that ruling against them would result in consequences that are undesirable. And, you know, frankly, it's to the court's credit that they actually had the courage to stand up and say, we don't care about that. Yep. I, actually, Gorsuch said it much more eloquently than that. You can, the full quotation's in our video, but, but yeah, you know, uh, that, that's really the, the two views of law that are at play here. Yeah, and, you know, I, th I think it's worth noting, too, that often this idea of, you know, what's, what's going to be beneficial is highly subject to interpretation for one thing. Better and for judges are the, are the least capable of any person in our government to answer that. They're not elected. They serve life terms. Most of them are very well educated, older. Yeah, they they have a very specific point of view generally, and that's you know in interpreting the law, that's not necessarily a drawback in terms of making holistic decisions for American society. It very much is, and that's why Congress is set up the way it is, and it's meant to draw on a whole wide array of interests and backgrounds. Supreme um, Court is about the least representative group of nine people in this country. If you yeah. picked any nine people you could think of to see who represents the entire United States the worst, it'd be hard to find a group of nine <laughs> that accomplishes that better than the people who are on the Supreme Court. Yeah. I mean, they all went to one of two schools. Well, no, no, no. Barrett, Barrett went to a different one. That's right. Um, you're, you're right. One of those schools. <laughs> Barrett went to a different one. Yeah, there's so there's that. Almost all for of For a while, them I think the there past... were five justices that were born within four blocks of each other in Brooklyn. Yeah, pretty, pretty much every justice for like the last 50 years went to Harvard or Yale and was from New York. And you're right, like basically one, you know, one neighborhood, more or less. So, of, so if, if you are serious about representative government, you really don't want the Supreme Court to be the ones that are doing it for you. No. What they can do, though, what they're trained to do, and this is why we want legal professionals to be as educated as we can get them to be, is understand the rules of how the law is interpreted and then apply them. The, the, and, better, the better a judge you are, the more responsible of a judge you are, the less things like background and uh, you know, personal experience should matter. Right, because what you're being asked to do is very limited in scope. You're being asked to say, what is the law, and how does it apply to the facts that are being presented? Here's a sentence. Uh, Here's where the commas are. Yeah. <laughs> Here's you know, how in, this in, subordinate in, clause affects the... 
Here's in many how, instances, here's how these nested is, prepositions work. <laughs> yeah, it is that mechanical sometimes. I forget what we were talking about a few weeks ago, but we were talking about something that was exactly that, where you asked me, like, oh, how would you read this? And I gave you one answer, and then I thought about it, and oh. I was like, no, it needs another comma. Um, that, that, that was another another case recently. Oh, yeah, I forget which one that. that that is. But it was great because it was right after the late Justice Scalia had passed away, and, and he was probably one of the main proponents of almost rigidly, we want black letter tests for this stuff. We read things exactly as written. We, you know, we don't read them even the way we colloquially read them, frankly. Uh, and then right. right after this, we get both sides of the court. They're just doing standard statutory interpretation. They're both doing textual criticism of the, the statute. I, I don't, it's, I think it was, it was a list. And the last yeah, item was. in the list was unclear whether it was supposed to be read as an adjective that modified the, I'm getting away we're too getting, nitty gritty. Yeah, we're, we're getting into Let's move on to here. our next subject. <laughs> <laughs> so this is going to be the last one for this section. And then we'll move into our last segment after this. And I think this is a case that neither of us know a huge amount about. But Speaking we thought of balancing to... tests, though. <laughs> yeah, we thought it was important to bring this one up, though. It's uh, Kennedy v. And I'm, I'm assuming it's pronounced Bremerton. Could be Bremerton. I don't know. And I'm not even sure what state this place is Bremerton. in. Uh, uh, but That's anyway, right, it uh, shouldn't be. Yeah, we'll, we'll call it Bremerton <laughs> School District. And so basically, this is a First Amendment case. Kennedy, I think his name is Joseph Kennedy. Interesting. Oh, I didn't enough. know he was still alive. Uh, <laughs> um, anyway, he was a, I don't think it's a the football same guy. coach. I don't, I don't think it <laughs> is. Is not the, the famous bootlegger and ambassador? No, I don't think so. Pretty sure he's <laughs> a different guy. He's a football coach at, at a, a public high school in the school district. And the facts of the case, as I understand them, and I'm, I'm hazy on this, I think you're a little hazy on this too, but this is the, as best we understand it. He had a habit, after each game ended, of walking out to the 50-yard line and praying, taking a knee, praying. And at first, as I understand it, he did this completely alone, and then later some of the players would join him doing this. Sounds like it was unprompted. And they just kind of joined him of their own initiative. Yeah, at the very least, that's his account of it. You know, because the, the opposition account hinges on the idea that there was some kind of indirect coercion involved in this. We, we can talk about that in a bit. I, think uh, they're just, I don't know that they're saying coercion. They're saying just endorsement. Well, there's two things going on there. And we'll, we'll get, let's shelve that for a second. We'll get into that. One of the, the key facts here, at least that they've been talking about, I'm skeptical that it really matters that much in, in actual matter of law, is the fact that the crowds were still present. So basically the school was viewing this as a public act that he was doing. Out of a concern. display, more, more than yeah. a act of, I guess, devotion. Yeah. And I, again, this is one of the things I'm hazy about. I think there was some kind of disciplinary warning, but apparently pretty soon after this came to their attention, he was fired. And as near as I can tell, basically the reason they cited for firing him was that they didn't want to expose the school district to charges of having endorsed religion by permitting him as an employee to... to you know, perform a religious act in this public manner. Uh, they were basically. thinking of cases like Wallace v. Jaffrey, 1985, where, you know, a moment of silence, it was supposed to be a, a non-religious moment of silence, was held unconstitutional. If schools are seen as endorsing a particular religion, or even religion generally, that's something that can be viewed as running afoul of the Establishment Clause. Yeah, and so, what you know, one of the big issues here is that the technically 
still extant precedent about establishment clause, which in the establishment clause is part of the First Amendment that has to do with establishment of religion, or in other words, the government endorsing or establishing a particular religion as the official religion or favored religion. The precedent that still governs... Oh, no, it's, it's, it's the ghoul from the late night horror movie. <laughs> I know what he's going to yeah, say that's, next. That's a, that's a Scalia quote, or, or a paraphrase anyway. Uh, it's called the Lemon Test, named yeah. after a, another case. Um, here, here to and, haunt our Establishment Clause jurisprudence yet again. Yeah. <laughs> Very famously in the Lambs Chapel v. Center Morich's Union Free School District case, a 1993 case, Scalia was so fed up with the fact that the, the court would repeatedly slay and then reinvoke this Lemon Test that he compared right. it to a ghoul in a late night horror movie. It's a very funny section. It's worth looking up. Yeah. So basically, like, no one wants it around. Everyone wants to get rid of it. Everyone recognizes basically. But the key to its success that is that it's so easy to kill. Yeah, that it's that it's bad, uh, bad law. Almost everyone will tell you that it's bad law. And this is, we but, talked about balancing tests earlier. Lemon test is sort of the archetypal balancing test. Yeah. But no one has thus far at least articulated a better way that has been accepted or definitively killed it off for so good. The, the, the last part of what you said made the former part correct. There have been a lot yeah. of other standards that have been articulated, but they have not yeah. been accepted. Notably, I think Rehnquist's standard from Wallace v. Jaffrey, I think that's certainly the most constitutionally supported, which is um, that the Establishment Clause prevents the federal government from creating an established church. Yeah, and I would certainly argue that that's the clearest understanding of the First Amendment, that, you know, the, the term establishment of religion had a very specific meaning. Uh, David's degree the, is in religion, and I think specifically history of the church. Sort of. Uh, close enough, anyway. So, All yeah, that to yes, say, I, you should trust him on this stuff. Establishment <laughs> of religion is a very clear reference to the established church in the United Kingdom. The Church of England, the Church of Scotland, Church of Wales, those situations have changed a bit in British law, but essentially... They still do have them. Uh, they, they do have established religions. The Church of Wales has been disestablished, but the Church of England, the Church of Scotland, and I believe the Church of Northern Ireland are still established churches. The Queen is still technically the head of the Church of England. That is an yeah. established church. And, and that is... When Thomas Jefferson refers in his letter to the Danbury Baptists of a wall of separation between church and state, that's what he's talking about. That... Yep. Somebody who is an officer of the state would not, by virtue of being an officer of the state, also hold some kind of religious title. Yeah. You know, that may seem obvious, but it historically has not been obvious. All kinds of societies oh, <laughs> have, to this day, actually, I think... Across we the were globe, the celestial now. emperor in China. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But continuing to the modern day... Uh, Andorra, which is one of those European microstates that's only for rich people and probably like right in the middle of France, basically. I think it's between, it's in between France and Spain. It's in the Pyrenees. Yeah, yeah, that's right. By constitution of Andorra, it has two what are called princes. So like, you know, they're heads of state, technically. One is the president of France. It used to be the king of France until they got rid of him. But the other is a Roman Catholic bishop whose bishopric is in Spain, you're right, so, so it is between France and Spain. And they're just kind of like, yeah, you know, we've had it this way for a long time, we don't see a reason to upset the apple cart. Why not, right? And, and, so, and David's picked a very obscure example here, but it, it's really very pervasive. Like, um, yeah, I go to church with a guy who lived in Germany for a few years, and this probably, it was not that long ago, it would have been 1980s, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, and when he was getting paid by his employer, his paycheck asked, as part of his, his tax withholding, what church he wanted his taxes to support. 
whether it yep. was no, that, Protestant that's true or, or Roman Catholic. Yep. Germany's not the only one. There are at least a few other European countries where the state diverts tax money to specific churches. Yep. Um, and that's just sort of part of the fabric of their society. And it, it doesn't seem that unusual to them for the most part. And when uh, a lot of folks hear, hear separation of church and state, I think that they hear separation of religion and state. Uh, yeah. And that's, in many senses, that I think that's showing the blessings of having lived in a country that has the First Amendment and has had the First Amendment for 250 years. Because yeah. you know, if we did not live in such a society, I think that what establishment of religion refers to would be very, very clear. And we would see the clear and obvious benefits of having institutional separation between the two. Yeah. Anyway, to bring it back to, to Kennedy, there's been a lot of confusion about that and whether or not you know the original interpretation is right. I think we can say that the history of legal interpretation of the First Amendment has drifted pretty far away from that original scaffolding. Um, That's why I refer back to the, the Rehnquist opinion in Wallace v. Jaffrey. It's sort of the, the central piece expressing that because he goes through the mm -hmm. whole, he says, I don't agree with anything that the majority opinion has just said. Here's how establishment clause jurisprudence actually ought to work. Yeah, but so in, in this particular case, I think I queued up the audio for this. Let me just, before we do that, I'd like to just go through the prongs of the lemon test so people, we keep referring sure, to this sure, lemon sure, test. Sure. Let's say what it is. So it's, it's three prongs. First is the statute must have a secular legislative purpose. What does that mean? Nobody knows. <laughs> no, it, it's ba basically you have to show that there is some goal that's being advanced by this legislation that is secular in function. I don't know how you determine what's secular and what isn't because many of the moral precepts or values that are advanced by religions are the same as what a moral person who is non-religious would advance. That's the first prong. Second prong is the principle or primary effect of the statute must neither advance nor inhibit religion. Mm -hmm. That's similarly ambiguous. And then the third prong is the statute must not result in, and this is a direct quote from the case, an excessive government entanglement with religion. And there's three factors for that. The character and purpose of the institution benefited, the nature of the aid the state provides, and the resulting relationship between government and religious authority. But as you can see, yeah. excessive government entanglement which who is, not, is not a workable test. That depends entirely no. on the opinion of the person asking. And, you know, what constitutes entanglement? How do we determine what's entangled? And in this case, it seems to be the opinion of the school district that an employee visibly praying where people can see him is excessive entanglement. Yeah, well, you see, he's the coach of the football team, so he's, like, in charge of the football game. So people might think this is an official part of the football game if he goes out and prays on the field afterward. Yeah. Part of the controversy in the argument seems to hinge on, A, whether the school district's actions have to be measured just by what they explicitly said they were doing when they fired the coach, which, you know, again, I don't have all the facts, but I think it seems to be that they said they didn't want to be seen as endorsing religion. And secondly, so, so whether they need to be judged on that or whether you can introduce reasons that they didn't bring up. And then the second question seems to be whether they really were only saying it was about endorsement of religion. Well, I'll, I'll play a clip of the audio where they this is a moral go to argument. that. Yes. So let me, let me make sure you can hear this. Justice Gorsuch. Mr. Clement, uh, one of the difficulties of this case is um, getting one's hands around the district's rationale. And um, 
as I understood it, it was based on kind of our lemon endorsement test. And you're arguing, as I, as I hear you, that that's, that was a mistaken test and it is a mistaken way to think about what the Establishment Clause requires. Um, you had a colloquy about coercion as an alternative, and I'd, I'd just like your thoughts on that subject generally. I appreciate the question. I don't think, I mean, you know, people are trying to dispute this record. I think it is very clear on what motivated the district. And it was endorsement, 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 endorsement again. Not not coercion. Not coercion. If you look at their first letter after the October 16th game, um, Joint Appendix page 90 to 95, there are eight references to endorsement or endorsing, zero references to either coercion or player safety. The question that was that he was addressing there was what resulted in the firing of the coach. His contention, and it seemed mostly like it was true, was that the school district had said they were concerned about being perceived to be endorsing religion. So that's why he kept saying endorsement, endorsement, endorsement. It seems to me like you run into the exact same problem if you fired the guy, though. If that's really true, then aren't you also endorsing well, irreligion? You fire him. Yeah, no, that, that's a perfectly valid question. And it seems like, f- whether for that reason or for other reasons, I didn't read enough to, to be confident about this. The school district apparently realized after the fact that they really didn't want to be hanging their case on this. And so at the very least, their counsel started redirecting and saying, well, it wasn't really about the endorsement or it wasn't only about the endorsement. What it was really about was coercion of the students or the players who would possibly well, feel that they, they had to have participate. to make that argument. Yeah have to make that argument if they want to stand any chance. Right. And so then... There just aren't to be, facts one, to support that. Yeah. That's one of the avenues it seemed to be taking was they were trying to make a case that there was this kind of indirect or soft coercion that was going on, basically because if the players see him praying, they will think, I guess, that he wants them to join him in this prayer. Pray time now. Yeah. That if they don't, their playing time may be affected or, you know, he won't think well of them. And, you, see, you know, there has to be facts to support that, though. You can't just say the mere fact that an authority figure is doing something means that other people now feel compelled to do similarly. Yeah, and I will and as say... As far as I've seen, there just aren't facts to support that in this case. Yeah, I will say I haven't seen everything to do with this case. So that maybe they do have some facts in that, lend credence to that. Maybe they've adduced some evidence in that direction. I haven't seen it, if they have, but... If somebody does say, you have to pray with me in a sectarian prayer, mm-hmm. or I will somehow make life at this school worse for you, whether you'll play less on the field, or your grades will be worse, or you'll be kicked off the team, whatever, that would present clear establishment clause problems. Yeah. It just doesn't seem that's what's going on here. I guess we do have to include the caveat. We haven't seen everything, but it seems like it's a real tough road to hoe to make that argument. Well, keep in mind, the Supreme Court hears cases on appeal, and appellate cases generally are not going to revisit factual findings from lower courts unless there's plain error. Yep. That case is still ongoing, hasn't been decided yet. We may be back next week to talk about what they did decide. Or I would be know. very surprised if this went in favor of the school district. I'm inclined to agree, but, you know, we'll see. Cliffhanger, tune back in next week. Um, if I'm wrong, I have to eat a gavel. Uh-huh. We are not going to specify right now what that gavel will be made of. It could be chocolate, but... <laughs> See, that's a lawyer trick. <laughs> anyway, that'll wrap up that case, and we're going to transition into our last segment of the podcast. We don't have a name for this yet. I, you know... I'll say it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be pitching things to you, and my first thought, 
and I, w- I want the pitch to be on air so that the, the listeners can respond as well. Uh-huh. Uh, it's the law sauna where we're going to bask in legal hot takes. Um, now, uh, yeah. I know you hate that name. Two, two fat men. Like, I don't know that's a mental image anybody wants. <laughs> you know, fair, fair enough, although I do think that's kind or of... Or I'll call myself fat. I, you're, you're fine. <laughs> eh, no, I'm fat. Uh, but uh, classically, at least in my experience, fat men are exactly who go in saunas. Yeah, that's my experience. As well. but, uh, Not that I've had a lot of experience in saunas, but from... No, but the, uh, the gym that I used to go to had a sauna as part of the locker room facilities. I hate saunas, personally. I don't like the heat. Not a big fan. I don't like sweating. But, yeah, no, uh, I agree with that. But it was always old men, you know, past their physical prime, let's say. That was uh-huh. always who was in it. So, anyway. Oh, but... If you like the tame law sauna, I suppose that's an option. Yeah, hashtag law sauna. Otherwise, we're probably going to be renaming this. Hashtag law sauna. <laughs> and if not, yeah, we'll try a new name out next week. But basically what this is, is I've collated some examples of people's legal analysis online. You haven't seen any of these. So we're going to be getting your, your live reaction. He means um, me. Yeah. You, as an Alexander Haberbush, have not seen any of these. So, without further ado, let me pop up the first one. All right. What, these are videos? or No, uh, most of these are... Actually, I think all of these are going to be just screenshots, but we'll, okay. we'll, we'll read them. So you need to share it. Yeah. Of the screen sharing. All right. So uh, as you can see already, this is something to do with a Krispy Kreme donut. And Yeah, let's see. Krispy Kreme has made a sweet announcement. Now people... Oh, let's stop, uh, stop moving it like that. Okay. <laughs> now people who have been vaccinated against the coronavirus can get a free original glazed donut. All you need to do is show up to a store with documentation proving you got your dose or doses. And it goes on. Um, so this is someone responding. <laughs> and she says, such cheap hashtag bribery might be a breach of hashtag Nuremberg codes. <laughs> <laughs> Neither donut makers nor hashtag journalists have have right to convince people to take hashtag experimental treatments. Uh, and now, she, are, are the donuts the experimental treatment or the vaccine? I, I think we can assume it's both. Um, no, but, you know, for any of you unfamiliar... Uh, you know, donuts aren't that healthy for you either. That's a good point. And actually, I did, unrelated to this, I did see someone objecting to it on those grounds. I think that was a doctor <laughs> saying you shouldn't offer people donuts for the vaccine because that's just as unhealthy as anything else. Um, was this person think the vaccine was healthy or unhealthy? Yes. Uh, so th- th- that doctor <laughs> was advocating the vaccine but pushing back on the donuts. This person, ah, I okay. think we can assume... They like this. This person thinks donuts are a fairly substantial inducement to get vaccinated, <laughs> yes. apparently. Um, and so much so that they could be war crimes. Um, yes. And then, just to piggyback on that, someone else says, excellent, and it violates HIPAA regulations. Okay. So are we showing this to me to ask me if it violates the Nuremberg Code or HIPAA? Yeah, why not we on, on both of those things, I guess? Um. No, knee-jerk is no. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> not sure what section of the Nuremberg Codes they're referring to. Uh, I'm trying to rack my brain here. I don't even know what that could be a reference to. And as far as HIPAA is concerned, this doesn't require disclosure of anything. You're voluntarily disclosing the medical record to Krispy Kreme. Yeah, I've seen HIPAA crop up a lot about people concerned about various vaccination requirements. In many instances, they seem to believe that anyone talking about anyone's medical treatment in any capacity is a violation of HIPAA. Is that true? Yeah. I guess you tell me. Is that, is that accurate? No. So HIPAA actually has to do with healthcare providers mm-hmm. disclosing or not disclosing medical records. It has to do with you know basic due diligence they have to practice for privacy of people's medical records. 
There are other medical privacy regulations that generally prevent non non-medical persons from disclosing medical records as well, but HIPAA is more specific than that. Yeah, all that to the say... The Nuremberg Code's about war crimes. It's not really about... <laughs> Donuts or vaccines. Um, oh, no, not, not, not particularly. Yeah, all right. So anyway, that's, that's, that's the first one. All right, well, that was, that was fun. Um, <laughs> just, just so everybody's aware, Lex Rex takes no stance on the efficacy of vaccination of any kind or whether or not somebody ought to get it. If people do have sincerely held religious objections, medical objections to vaccination, or even if you just want to assert bodily autonomy as your objection to vaccination, we are prepared to defend those claims for anybody that wants to bring them. That is very true, but we would recommend not relying on the Nuremberg Code if you have to argue. You know, I actually, actually, I had a client that really was like begging me to insert these Nuremberg claims into the demand letter that we write. And then he, he had a section of the California Code showing where the Nuremberg Codes have been incorporated in the California Code. But my thought was, why don't we just cite something that's actually law in California? Because you can see it's incorporated right here. Just cite this. Mm -hmm. And it had to do with ex using experimental treatments yeah. on, on people. Yeah. Okay, oh, so that, that might have been what this person was thinking of. Maybe uh, that's, that's the... think the combination of vaccine and donut is experimental. That could be, yeah. We have not tested the effects of the vaccine on someone who has just ingested or is just about to ingest a glazed donut. Right. And just so everybody's aware, the Nuremberg arguments about experimental treatments have to do with test subjects of experiments. Yeah. It doesn't just mean that the medical procedure is one that has not been properly tested, which is absolutely true for these vaccines. They're only subject to the emergency youth authorization. I'm sorry, emergency use authorization. But the mere fact that they have not been fully approved does not mean that every person that they're distributed to is a test subject. Right. I think that's a, that's a stretch. I'm sympathetic to that, you know, in that direction, but I don't, I don't think the argument works. Yeah. Now, this next one, uh, this is actually going to be in two parts. And I, I bring this one up specifically because knowing you, you may take a very particular stance on this. Oh, we may have to edit out my response. That I think other people will not. Uh, well, no, it, this, this is all leading into a grammar joke. So let me show you. This is the, the headline, uh, first of all. <laughs> Definitely uh, have to edit out my response then. Suspect told the police. I'm sorry. You guys can't see this. Yeah. The suspect told the police, give me a lawyer dog. Court says he wasn't asking for a lawyer. Yeah. So, oh, give me a lawyer, comma, dog. Yeah. And now uh, let me bring up the, the second part. Uh, There's no comma in the headline, by the way. Right, right, right. That's why I, I was curious how you would respond to this. So, so okay, so this has got to be in a Miranda context, right? Yes, it is. And you, you'll see. So, you... so he's invoking his right to an attorney, and they're saying he didn't ask for a lawyer. He asked for a lawyer dog. Yes. So, you know, even, even if that were true, he could just be mistaken about the ability of a dog to sit for the bar and have a law license. Yeah, so I'll, I'll read this next part. This is from the actual text of the like article. Some, yeah, I would, you know, some people could think that dogs could be lawyers. I don't know. <laughs> when a friend says, I'll hit you up later, dog, he is stating that he will call again sometime. He is not calling the person a, quote, later dog. But that's not how the courts in Louisiana see it. And when a suspect in an interrogation told, oh, well, it's Louisiana. That'd be why. told detectives, we, we'll, be, we'll need to delve into that in a second, why Louisiana specifically. I, I don't just dislike Louisiana. Yeah, well, there's, there's a specific reason. Uh, when a suspect in an interrogation told detectives to, quote, just give me a lawyer, dog, the Louisiana Supreme Court ruled the suspect was, in fact, asking for a lawyer dog and not invoking his constitutional right to counsel. 
It's not clear See, how many lawyers. Really mad because even even if he had been asking for a lawyer dog, there's no reason to think that's not invoking his right to counsel. Yeah, it's not, it's not clear how many lawyer He's dogs. He's not legally required to know who's allowed to be a lawyer and who's not in order to invoke that right. It's not clear how many lawyer dogs there are in Louisiana and whether any would have been available to represent the human suspect <laughs> in this case, other than to give the standard admonition in such circumstances to simply stop talking. <laughs> So, I only want my lawyer dog to answer questions for me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, he was probably saying, "I want a lawyer dog." Yeah, I calling the police officer dog. I think that's almost completely, uh, you know, indisputable. Indisputable. But uh, I guess <laughs> so. Uh, so we are on the same page on that one. I'm glad. But I, I think um, we should talk about what well, again. I would say even if. He was asking for a lawyer dog. I still think it's a valid invocation of his right to counsel. Yeah, no, no, that that's a fair point too. You know, they could have told him there are no lawyer dogs, but we can get you a lawyer. That's not a thing. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> anyway, Louisiana does not recognize canines as suited for bar membership. Yeah. Okay, so when I mentioned the Miranda context a second ago. You, most of you guys are probably familiar with that already. That's You've seen that in every procedural TV show about police officers. They say, you have a right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you. You have a right to an attorney, you know, so on and so forth. Well, the way that the courts have interpreted Miranda rights to attach is that uh, once somebody is suspected of a crime and the police want to interrogate that person, so ask that person targeted questions with the purpose of eliciting incriminating information. Uh, if they want to do that, they have to read the Miranda rights. And then at that point, if somebody invokes their right to an attorney, the police have to stop asking questions. And if they didn't stop asking questions, if for whatever reason they kept asking questions, and still managed to elicit incriminating information, that would be excluded from evidence in court. The court could not use that because the police had questioned the person illegally. So really, I mean, by saying that this person asked for a lawyer dog, when clearly this person is at least trying to invoke their rights in a Miranda context, they're almost certainly being wrongfully convicted of a crime, which is a very serious thing. You're not going to say anything, David? I I thought you were doing a monologue here. <laughs> oh, uh, I mean, I guess it is the, the hot take section, but... Uh... <laughs> yeah, no, 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 yeah. So, like, in, this will be true for everything in this section. There may be very serious problems with what's going on. We don't mean to make light of that. We're just focused on the absurdity of the interpretation here. Don't interpret this as us saying, this doesn't matter. It matters a lot. It's just also ridiculous. It's an absurd legal conclusion. Yeah. But anyway, speaking <laughs> of Louisiana, we should we should clarify your remarks about Louisiana in that yeah. context. It's not just that we're saying Louisiana is so, a bad place or a bad state. Um, so, so as you probably remember from your history classes, George Washington, gosh, Thomas Jefferson bought Louisiana as part of the Louisiana Purchase from Napoleon in 18... I'm going to get the year wrong, but early 18 teens mm -hmm. uh, for $15 million. That's a good price. <laughs> but uh, because it had previously been a part of France, the legal system in Louisiana is completely different from the rest of the United States. Every other state in the union has a common law system, whereas Louisiana has a statutory system. Yeah, which we'll probably have to save what that means in depth. For a later podcast. Practically but... speaking, it just means all their names for everything are different. 
Yep. All things just works a little bit differently there. Uh, who knows? Maybe dogs can sit on the bar there. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to see that, I think, especially if he can speak I, French. I saw a, a 1930s movie where they dressed up a bunch of dogs uh, in little outfits and then, like, had them on strings and stuff, and they did a, did a trial where, you know, like a basset hound was the judge and all the dogs were all the litigants. Yeah. Um, that, that might have been in Louisiana. That, I don't know. That's probably what the judge thought he was talking about, and he was like, well, we don't have that movie. Yeah. <laughs> All right, anyway. That's not real. You don't get a lawyer. <laughs> this is going to be our last one for this week. This is a good one. Okay, so this is this looks like a tweet again. It is, it is. And it says, Dude, the elected representatives passed a law and governor signed it. They are all elected by the people. That is the definition of a representative republic and constitutional. Courts are not elected, and if they try to mess with past laws, that is unconstitutional. So do you agree? Ah. <sighs> Okay, I, I don't know any way to address this other than just to break it down. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, the elected representatives passed a law and the governor signed it. Yeah, that is how laws are passed. They're elected by the people. That's true. Mm -hmm. uh, that is the definition of a representative republic. Well, I mean, it's a state. Uh, sure, okay. Cor well, you, 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 you forgot the second part of that. That is the definition of a representative republic and constitutional. So automatically... Therefore, it's inherently constitutional. Automatically. Is the argument that he's making here. Yes. Automatically, any law that's passed and signed... If, yeah, any, any law that went through a legislature and was signed is constitutional, so courts can't mess with that. Uh-huh. Yeah, that checks out. That's right. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, I think I recall there being a pretty important Supreme Court case about this way back when... You know, this actually predates the Supreme Court. Uh, we, we've mentioned on a couple of the Ask an Attorney videos, <laughs> the idea of judicial review goes back to Dr. Bonham's case, which I think is from like 15 teens. Again, I can't give the exact year, but it's during the reign of Elizabeth I uh, right. that we have. And that's just the first documented mention of judicial review. We had a long oral code, I'm sorry, oral tradition of English common law way before that. But even without a, const a written constitution in Great Britain, judges still stood in judgment over the acts of the legislature when those acts went against the traditionally accepted rights of the British subjects. So, you know, it goes way back. It's, again, it predates the constitution. The constitution is predicated upon the idea of judicial review. That's part of the basic function of what the judiciary does. And just, you know, just kind of it's upsetting that uh, Lex Rex hasn't reached these people yet. So Yeah, well, and, you know, I guess that's, that's a good way for us to close. You can help us help people like this, you know. <laughs> we... This boy needs help. Yes. It's, it's, you remember those sad commercials that, that had the, the kids in Africa and they would say, you know, a dollar a day can feed this yep. kid. And, mm -hmm. and it's, you always watch it and it's, you just feel horribly because you see all these kids that are suffering and and. You know, I actually kind of, I watched it and it's like, oh, I feel horrible about that. that. And then it's like, no, they're manipulating me into feeling horrible. And then I kind of <laughs> resent them for doing it. Um, <laughs> but that's what we're going to do with this guy. Uh, because Lex Rex doesn't have the reach that we would like to, this poor boy doesn't understand what a constitutional republic is. And he goes yeah. around saying things that get him made fun of on the internet. Uh, and that's just not... That's not a good life to live. So a no. dollar a day from one of our one of our subscribers 
can keep this kid off of Twitter <laughs> and can make sure that he knows <laughs> what the Constitution says and understands what a constitutional republic is. Yeah. Uh, so dollar a day. All that to say, it doesn't need to be a dollar a day. It could be anything, but we would really, really appreciate it if you would consider donating to us. You can find information about that on our website. Lex I don't Arts. think you can do ongoing. Not yet. Not yet. yet. We're, we're working on that. <laughs> you got to do um, one time. Donating. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, if you wanted to say like a dollar a day for the rest of your life and you estimate that at 30 years, that'd be great. We'd love that. But that'd be a good amount. It can yeah. be it can be less than that. You could just give us a dollar. That would be fine. But or, or even just give us a name for what we are currently calling the law sauna. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I'm sensing some hostility from my co-host as to that name. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, no, no. We'll, <laughs> we'll revisit that. But it, in, if, it doesn't need to be financial either. We'd love donations, but we'd also love you to get involved. We have certain programs that we're running. You know, you can find more information about that on our website. We'll talk about it here. And even just sharing our website, any of our posts, this podcast, we'd hugely appreciate it. And we hope that you will. And with that, I guess, thanks for listening to this first episode. Yeah, thanks for listening. Hopefully we'll do many more like it or not like it if you guys didn't like the format. Yep, exactly. <laughs> All right. So goodbye, everybody. All right. Good night. <laughs>